If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Fifth and Mission. There's a disease spreading on the wind that has health officials worried, but it's not COVID. This is an illness carried in the dust, kicked up by farming and construction work. Most people who get it don't even get sick, but some who do can suffer severe or debilitating symptoms. It's known as valley fever, and it spreads to humans through fungal spores that grow in soil. This fungus used to live mainly in the Arizona desert and in California's lower San Joaquin Valley, but now it's expanding its territory northward, into the Bay Area. And a growing body of research suggests that's because of climate change. So there's this hypothesis in the valley fever community called the grow and blow hypothesis. This is Dr. Jennifer Head, an epidemiologist and environmental health sciences researcher. The fungus needs moisture and nutrients to grow, and then it needs periods of heat and dryness in order to spread the spores. Dr. Head is the lead author of a recent study from UC Berkeley's School of Public Health looking at the spread of valley fever. Researchers were working to figure out how climate change might be causing valley fever cases to spike in increasingly northern parts of California, including Contra Costa County. She says after the fungus has grown, it needs dry conditions that allow soil to get blown around and the spores to spread. It's possible that what's happening in these more northern counties is that they've always had enough moisture to initiate a growth cycle of the fungus, but they haven't always had high enough temperature and dryness to initiate that dispersion process. When those areas get a warmer summer, the rates of valley fever shoot up in those uh, counties. Valley fever isn't the only disease that scientists believe climate change is pushing into new regions. As the climate warms, we're going to see changes in infectious disease transmission. So up ahead in the program, we'll discuss why the spread of valley fever could be an early warning sign of what climate change will bring. First, though, we're going to stay closer to home. Reported cases of valley fever statewide have increased roughly fivefold over the course of a decade. It's hitting agricultural workers particularly hard, a group with lower access to health care. To get us started, I want to bring in Gabe Castro-Root, who's been reporting on valley fever for The Chronicle. He's here to explain why this disease has officials on edge. Gabe, thanks for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Valley fever sounds kind of scary. Fungal disease definitely sounds kind of scary. What is valley fever? Valley fever is a respiratory disease. It's spread by fungal spores, and it causes symptoms often similar to a cold in people that it infects. But the majority of people who contract it actually don't get sick. But those who do, which is about 40% of people, have symptoms similar to a typical viral infection, except that with valley fever, symptoms often last longer. They can regularly last several weeks or months. And so even if the disease itself is not that significant, it can have long-lasting implications. And in fewer cases, about 10% of the time, the disease can lead to more serious or long-term illness. And rare cases can even spread to other parts of the body, causing 
sicknesses like meningitis or, in rare cases, even death. One person I talked to who actually got meningitis from Valley Fever about a decade ago is still on antifungal medication to this day. Wow. And even though he largely has the rest of his life back, it's still stuck with him all this time. Is there good treatment or prevention available for people who contract Valley Fever? There is no vaccine or cure for Valley Fever, oh. but the medication can help control the symptoms and help boost your immune system in its effort to fight off the sickness. So basically, if you get this, there's a good chance you won't have any symptoms at all, but there is also a chance that you could have symptoms for a long time and your body could struggle to clear it. It's up to your immune system, and if that doesn't work out, you might have a long-term chronic illness. Exactly. You can take medication that helps manage the symptoms, but you can't necessarily get rid of it completely. Like many effects of climate change, this has disproportionate impacts. Who is it largely affecting? So valley fever tends to impact largely people who are exposed to dusty conditions very often. That is especially true of people who work in agriculture or in construction. In California, the overwhelming majority of people who work in agriculture are Latino and are largely low income. And you see that reflected in the state's case data where Hispanic and Latino people represent a disproportionate number of valley fever cases. There's also research suggesting that older adults, people with compromised immune systems, and pregnant people have a higher risk of developing severe disease as well as people who are African-American or Filipino. And we already see that disparity reflected in the numbers with COVID, one concern is that asymptomatic infections are likely never counted because people don't get tested. How reliable is the data that we have on valley fever? Experts think that valley fever cases are largely undercounted in part because people haven't always known to get tested for it, to diagnose it, and because symptoms tend to be similar to other illnesses, if you think you have the cold, you're probably not going to go get a blood test to diagnose a fungal infection. And so experts think that even though cases are growing significantly, as we've seen over the last couple decades, the real numbers are probably quite a bit higher. And still, we've seen that the number of cases has grown dramatically. What are health officials concerned about here? Right. So I talked to public health officials in Contra Costa County. That's the county in the Bay Area where cases have grown the most. And the largest increase has been in the eastern part of the county, which touches the northern part of the San Joaquin Valley. And officials there are certainly worried because they've seen cases increase year after year. They're trying to spread the word to make sure that people know both to get tested and also to protect themselves as much as they can by staying out of dusty conditions if they're able to. Doctors report cases to their local county health officials, and so they're keeping a close eye on it, but they're definitely worried. Are there any measures that they're recommending people take to not get infected besides don't go into dust if you can avoid it? Right. So California is calling August this month Valley Fever Awareness Month, and I see that as sort of having two meanings. First is that they want people to know that valley fever is out there and get tested for it if they have those symptoms. But secondly, and I, probably more important, is they want people to know what steps they can take to prevent infection in the first place. And so what they're saying that you should do is if you're able to, in high-risk areas, avoid being outdoors in dusty conditions, that is, of course, the best thing you can do. Take yourself out of the area where you could contract it in the first place. But if you have to be, if you work 
in an industry like agriculture or construction where you have to be around dust for work in those high-risk areas. Wearing a well-fitted N95 mask can help lower your risk of breathing in the spores, but it's not completely secure. Now, there's concern that there will be even more of a surge in this disease coming up. When and why are authorities concerned about that? Valley fever tends to emerge most prominently in the years after a drought. When rains return after a drought, the fungus has moisture and can grow a lot. And so what you tend to see is that after a drought ends, cases tend to rise really dramatically over the next couple of years. We had a drought for the last few years, and then this past winter was extremely wet. And so officials are worried that that has led to a large increase in growth of the fungus, which would then translate throughout this summer and into the fall in a larger increase in cases. And we're going to talk about this more in a little bit, but is that's also why this is linked with climate change, right? Because we're having more extreme weather patterns in general? Right, exactly. And the California Department of Public Health says explicitly that it's the swing between drought and very wet conditions that allows the valley fever fungus to thrive. Great. Thanks, Gabe. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. The health department didn't just guess that there might be a connection between the drought cycle and the rise of valley fever. Years ago, health officials approached researchers to help figure out the most likely relationship between climate change and this fungus. We'll hear about that from one of the lead researchers in just a moment. We'll be right back. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. The fungal disease valley fever has been spreading north into cooler parts of the state from its original territory in the hot and arid San Joaquin Valley. Dr. Jennifer Head, assistant professor in the epidemiology department at the University of Michigan, studied how the fungus that causes valley fever is spreading. Last year, she was the lead author of a UC Berkeley study of valley fever in California. The researchers were looking at how climate change is helping this fungus, Coccidioides, migrate north. Dr. Head is here to explain what her research found and why valley fever may be a sign of things to come as climate change is pushing a range of other diseases into new areas. Dr. Head, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How did you and your colleagues first become aware that valley fever was on the rise and what steps did you take to research how it was spreading? In 2018, we were contacted by the California Department of Public Health, who became alarmed at the dramatic increases of valley fever in the state. So at the time, in 2018, the state was seeing pretty dramatic increases. Between 2000 and 2018, there was an increase of over 800% of valley fever cases, but that increase was even higher in some of these areas outside the traditional endemic region. So along the central coast and in the northern valley, there was an increase of, of 15-fold. And so the California Department of Public Health suspected that these dramatic increases and this expansion in its geographic range was attributable to climate change. They wanted to partner with researchers to try to understand specifically what climate factors were causing this increase. And so we started to look at how various patterns of rainfall and temperature in the state 
contribute to incidence of valley fever. We also wanted to add to this understanding by looking at the influence of drought. As we know, California has experienced some pretty severe drought in the past few decades. The period between 2000 and 2020 is actually the driest 20-year period since 800 CE. And so we wanted to understand how drought was affecting valley fever as well. And what you found was that this grow and blow theory is correct, and that is how the fungus is spreading? Yeah, so we found that relatively wet winters and relatively hot and dry summers contribute to higher incidence in the state. But the other thing that we found that was not previously confirmed before was that if you have a drought prior to a wet winter, the incidence is dramatically higher than what would be expected had that drought not occurred. And we think what's happening here is that that drought condition sets the fungus up to have a really productive growth cycle when the rains do return. There's sort of two hypotheses for why drought contributes to a rise in valley fever cases in in the following year. So one hypothesis is that the coccidioides spores in the soil are relatively hardy when compared to other competitors. And so what scientists think might be happening is that in periods of drought, the bacterial and other fungal competitors are dying off, but coccidioides is able to stay alive in its hardy spore form. And so when the rains do return, coccidioides can initiate its growth process, this time unencumbered by other competitors in the soil. Another hypothesis that I want to mention as well that's gaining a lot of traction in the field is that during drought, there's a strong die-off of rodents. And rodents contribute a lot of nutrients to the soil. So rodents contribute keratin through their hair, through their skin. And a lot of fungi can actually use keratin as a nutrient source to grow. And there's a lot of evidence that coccidioides does use keratin to grow. So it could be that there's a buildup of this keratin during drought when rodents are dying off that the fungus is also able to use to grow once the rains return. That is wild. Do we know whether this fungus spreads only through the soil to humans or whether humans can spread it to one another? Humans do not spread it person to person. Humans primarily contract it through direct inhalation of spores. I say primarily because there's been some very few cases where humans have contracted it through other methods. As one example, an individual broke their arm and their wound got inoculated with the fungus. Their medical team didn't know that. And so they they put a cast over the arm. And when they removed the cast, fungal spores were released and individuals became infected. But for the most part, (laughs) individuals only get it through contact with soils. Okay, was not (laughs) expecting to be grossed out this morning. Thank you for that wonderful (laughs) anecdote. But let's pivot and look at the bigger picture here, because it's not just valley fever that seems to be expanding its presence and infecting more people because of climate change. We actually know that many diseases are amplified or have a higher chance of jumping from animals to humans under the effects of climate change. Generally speaking, can you explain how that works? I think a lot of infectious diseases are sensitive to changes in the environment. A lot of infectious diseases are spread via either direct contact with our our environment or through contact with domestic or wild animals or through contact with vectors like ticks or mosquitoes that live in the environment. And so as the climate warms, as well as undergoes 
dramatic changes in frequency of storms or frequency of rainfall events, we're going to see changes in infectious disease transmission because the landscape of what vectors can survive in the environment are changing. The landscape of what pathogens can live in the soil is changing. It depends a lot on the disease system that you're talking about. We classify diseases based on their transmission cycle. So valley fever is a disease that you could classify as spreading from the environment to humans. And so in theory, anything that's happening to the environmental compartment where the pathogen is hanging out can affect whether or not that pathogen will be found there. Another class of diseases are those that are transmitted from the environment to humans with the help of a vector, such as a tick or a mosquito. And so ticks and mosquitoes generally do better when temperatures are warmer, with some exceptions. And so as areas warm, you might see an expansion in the range where ticks or mosquitoes can live that can then transmit pathogens to humans. So Lyme disease sounds like it would be an example of this. And are we already seeing Lyme disease spread this way? Lyme disease is a great example of this. I do believe we're seeing evidence that the expansion of the habitat for the tick vector that can transmit Lyme disease. The other pathway that can lead to increases in infection is speeding up of the cycle of the pathogen within the vector's body. So the pathogens have to go through an amplification process within the vector, and sometimes that process can be sped up under warmer conditions. Why is it important to be looking at the way these diseases spread and the way that climate change amplifies that? Yeah, I mean, we have strong evidence that our climate is warming and that we are experiencing other climatic changes associated with this warming, such as stronger swings between very dry conditions and and very wet conditions. And so we need to be able to anticipate how infectious diseases will spread in the future and where they'll spread. The kind of research that you do, especially given what I've learned today about the way that valley fever can spread, it seems like it can be often quite grim. Are there any aspects of what you're learning or how you're seeing people adapt to valley fever and other diseases that are being amplified by climate change that give you some hope? Yeah, I think in the case of valley fever, one thing that's hopeful is that there are a lot of researchers who are making good progress on developing a vaccine for valley fever. So there's actually no vaccine for any fungal disease out already, but there is an experimental valley fever vaccine that is being trialed with some success on dogs and hopefully will be available for humans one day, which would represent a tremendous advance, not just for valley fever, but also for fungal diseases at large. There are always new antifungal medications being experimented on, including those that have fewer side effects than the ones in existence. So uh, earlier we talked about a patient who is on antifungal medication for life, which does come with serious side effects, but there are new antifungal medications under development that might come with fewer side effects, which would be very welcomed by patients. I think humans are also resilient. And so in the case of of other diseases, humans are able to adapt and protect themselves against some infectious diseases. So in the case of tick-borne diseases, for instance, humans are able to develop strategies to protect themselves against mosquitoes or ticks or things like that. It's a bit harder for valley fever since maybe one of the protection mechanisms is wearing an N95, which is not necessarily something people want to do in the hot counties of California. But humans 
you know, by and large, I think are adaptable, resilient populations. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Jennifer Head is an associate professor in the epidemiology department at the University of Michigan and formerly a researcher with UC Berkeley. Gabe Castro-Root is a reporting intern for The Chronicle. Find his story at sfchronicle.com. Thanks to Keith Manconi for producing this episode, Sarah Feldberg for editing, Gary Baca for mixing, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>